I uh, want to just begin with a, a matter of personal privilege and say thank you for the time away that you've given me the last couple of weeks, your encouragement and your prayers. We've had a little bit of a family crisis. It was kind of unexpected. And so uh, Ann and I left town in a hurry to try to uh, be a part of that. And we just felt, felt so loved and encouraged by all of you. I said, yeah, go put your family first, go for it. And uh, a lot of notes and um, healing is a process. Uh, so there's more work to be done, but we felt like there really was this turning point and I attribute it to your prayers. It was qu quite dramatic actually one day where, the, where things just changed and we're like, wow, we're, we're being prayed for. We've got a community of people that is with us in this. So thanks for that. <laughs> thanks to uh, Pastor Aaron. And uh, our Pastor Emeritus Earl Palmer and uh, Tim Snow and the staff uh, who carried on uh, without me. And things seem to go strangely well, actually. I mean, it <laughs> bothers me, but I'm actually very grateful to you as well. Um, we did get the privilege of seeing two of our kids graduate from college, one in Texas and one in Rhode Island. And that is such a special treat. I'm wondering how many of you will get to go to a, a graduation of some kind this spring. Let me see your hands, either for you or for someone else you love. Yeah, a lot of you. Graduations are very interesting things. There's a ton of emotion, depending on who you are and your relationship to the whole situation. But the other thing that's interesting about this is this kind of Darwinian struggle, you know, for a seat. Um, <laughs> I'm just telling you, you, get there early. I got there 45 minutes early, and that got me second from the last row. And I know at church, that's the prime real estate, but for a graduation, you want to be down here. It's all about that one photograph. Um, so I see you up there. Um, and for a parking place and all that stuff. The other thing that's kind of interesting is you get to hear uh, like a stream of people processing what they think the world needs now. <laughs> right? I mean, there's all these speeches about meaning. I think people are trying to, they're trying to, wrestle with what, what was the meaning of the educational experience we just had or we, we just gave you? What's the meaning of your life now that you were commencing <laughs> with the rest of your life? What's the meaning of our history at this point and, and time? And it's so, I think as a follower of Jesus, fascinating to hear the culture wrestle with what gives life meaning. And today we're going to go back to the book of Romans, this letter that the Apostle Paul sends to these house churches in Rome, AD 57. And uh, he also has his thoughts about what gives life meaning. And for him, he's going to commend to us Jesus Christ. Uh, you won't be surprised to hear that at church, but he, if the Apostle Paul suggested we find the meaning of our lives in the meaning of his life. And, th and that's what it's all about. Uh, you know, I didn't hear a lot about that. And, um, and if you're going to a school where you hear that, that's awesome. But we're here today to remember that uh, he gives us meaning. So let's, let's look at that. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you'll find that on page 917 of the black book in the rack in front of you. Love for everybody to turn there. And if, if you're able, will you stand so that we can read? Yeah, Pastor Aaron is one step ahead of us. Lead, lead by example. Let's stand together and read this aloud with one voice. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. 
Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. But the law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. That was a mouthful to read, let's be honest. You guys did a really good job. <laughs> uh, you might keep it open though, because I want to call your attention to one word here for starters, and that's in verse 17, and it's a word that comes up a lot in the paragraphs you just read, and that's the word dominion. Dominion, or in some translations, it's reign, rule. Uh, for, for our purposes, let's think of that word dominion as getting the last word. Getting the last word. Those who receive, this is verse 17, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, Paul promises, will exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Our Lord gets the last word in life and in death. He exercises dominion. Now, this is not the kind of language that we use very often, um, dominion, exercising dominion. Um, but we know the concept. So if we say um, the Husky softball team rules, um, what we mean is, and they're playing right now, I believe, uh, at the, in the College World Series, is that at the end of the series, they will get the last word. It, it doesn't just mean that we like them or that they're our team. When we say dogs rule, we say the dogs will, they will win the series. At the end, when it's all over, they're going to get the last word. Uh, another example, it, it, maybe this summer you'll be with your family or some friends and you'll be on a road trip and you, there's that always mo the moment when you get hungry and you have to stop, and, but you, you know, where are you going to stop? And the negotiation in our family car can get nasty around this because we all have our places. And just recently I was driving from Maine, from Booth Bay, Maine, down to Providence, Rhode Island on the Eastern seaboard and I wanted to stop for food. I wanted to get an Italian sandwich. Now, I don't know, probably never, none of you has ever had an Italian sandwich from Maine. They're, it's different. You just have to trust me on this one. They make them special. Google Amato's Italian sandwich and you can learn about this. But it's really something. I used to eat them as a boy visiting my, grand, my grandfather. 
And I just didn't want to leave Maine, couldn't cross the border without having an Italian sandwich. Now, it was 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> so, I mean, nobody else wanted to stop for an Italian sandwich. We had just had lunch with my uncle in Portland. We were about to have breakfast. We were about to have lunch with some friends from a small group of ours in Boston back when we lived there. And nobody, zero, anybody wanted to stop except for me. So the negotiation began. And I worked my arts and we talked and talked and talked. And my family was nice. But let me tell you, you know how it ended. Um, this picture tells the story. There we are at 9.45 in the morning, eating Italian sandwiches. I got the last word. It was so good. And uh, that's my happy place right there. But it's dominion. It's me having dominion. <laughs> See? See? That's what dominion looks like. All right. So now I got to get back to the Bible. But um, what's happening here is that Jesus Christ will get the last word. That's what Paul's saying. Uh, he, he'll exercise dominion of all things. And to, to make this point... He gives us this comparison between two figures, um, Adam. And remember, Adam is simply the Hebrew word for man, Adam. It just means man. It comes from the word for red, like the soil, Adam, Adam. It, but not man in the male sense. It really means human being. It's, there's another word for male. Uh, so this is human being. Any, anywhere across the gender spectrum, this is just a human being, Adam. That's, that's a representative of humanity. That's, that's who Adam was theologically. And then, and then there's a second Adam. This is Jesus Christ. We refer to him oftentimes as the second Adam. And Paul said, look, let me just tell you that the work of Jesus Christ is not that much different from the work of Adam in the, in the scope and the effect of what, of what, their, what their agency does. So Adam was generally believed to have gotten the last word because, and, and they're both sort of similar. So there's, both of them are human beings. Both of them are alive to God in kind of a special way. Both of them are agents of creation. Adam is the agent, uh, agent of creation and Jesus is the agent of the new creation, which is be begun in, in Jesus. They're both representatives of all the human beings uh, around them and all human beings, actually. They both change history by what they do. The conditions and the possibilities of our life are different because of the choices that these two human beings make. Are you following so far? It's a little bit thick in this text. I'm going to try to simplify it for you. If you look, there are two acts. Look at verse 15 and we get Adam's act. Paul calls it one man's trespass. Uh, one man's trespass. That's, that's the first Adam. He's a human being. He disobeys God. And you know that story. Uh, and, and because he does, and because he's the first human being, uh, the, the, the descendants of Adam and Eve all carry a kind of a spiritual gene with them that gives them the, the propensity, the inclination to act similarly, to disobey God, to trespass, to transgress. That's the language Paul uses here. It's like a spiritual gene that's from generation to generation that keeps being repeated. Maybe it mutates and so that we don't sin in exactly the same way that Adam sins or in the way that the law prescribes. Many of us have been unique and completely original in the ways in which we uh, sin against God. But it's this kind of common thing that we have. There's a spiritual computer virus that just keeps getting passed uh, from one generation to the next. And the result of that is condemnation and death. And this is uh, where Paul uses the word dominion. Verse 14, death exercises dominion. Death, because of our sin against God, because all of us have sinned against God, death is this universal condition. It gets the last word for all, for all of us. And that, that's one of the teachings of the Bible that you, you, know, you don't have to struggle to believe. You just have to read the obituary paper, uh, section of the newspaper or virtually every other story in the, in the newspaper, right? Um, that's, that's what happens because of Adam and, and because of our participation in, in, in Adam's sin. 
One man's trespass. And so Paul's going, wait, you know, that's what they believed at that time, particularly the Jewish people to whom Paul is writing. And so he's going, if you, if you understand that about Adam, then you will, you will understand the wonders of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 18, we get the other side of the comparison. One man's act of righteousness. And this is the second Adam, Jesus. Here, God acting as a human being. This is the opposite of Adam. He obeys the Father. One act of righteousness. That sums up the whole of Jesus' life. It's not referring to the cross or, or to his death specifically. It's his whole life. That the, the, the Son of God became incarnate, took on a, a human being, not just flesh, but soul as well, and, then, and held on to our humanity all the way through the indignities and challenges of life, whether that's just being a, a baby and a child and an adolescent or them facing the temptation of the evil one or experiencing rejection or hunger or thirst or poverty or shame on the cross and death itself, descending into hell as the Apostles' Creed said, but then he holds on to our humanity all the way through all of that. He's tempted to say, no, I gotta let this go. I gotta be God and just God and let go of my humanity, but he doesn't. He loves you, so he's holding on to your human nature and my human nature to kind of cleanse it, to renew it, to restore it, and he, at every point he's tempted to say no and let it go, especially death and hell, but then he holds on and the resurrection then is the, is the, is the, is the beautiful culmination and climax and confirmation of his work. He then carries your humanity up into the heavenly places, Paul tells us elsewhere. We just had Ascension Day last Thursday, by the way, which means he has taken your human nature up and sat down at the right hand of the Father, which is a seat of honor and privilege and dominion. Which is to say that he gets the last word in all things. But we are with him. He represents us. Now, this is what Paul calls the abundance of grace. The, and here, he's, he's, the language just strains under the weight of his conviction. This is an abundance of grace. This is a gift, is the language he used. He wants to make sure that he gives this privilege. He gives this life. He gives this dominion to all of us as a gift. Now, um, let's note that a gift is not a gift unless it's received. And this is our response. And Earl did a great job in his sermons I think, ta talking about how uh, faith is how we lay hold of grace. It's our response to grace. And let me suggest that uh, because of my experience of commencement addresses the last two weekends, I've been thinking about commencement addresses. and I've done a little research and I've identified what Time Magazine said the best commencement address so far. And you, you, you know, if you know this story, you'll agree was at Morehouse College a couple weeks ago. Do you know this story? Uh, Robert F. Smith uh, um, was giving this address at Morehouse College and towards the end of his speech, and you'd hope the students were paying attention. It's actually quite a good speech, but you'd hope they'd pay attention because he slipped in a line. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna forgive all of your student debt. I'm gonna pay your student debt for you. And, and it takes everybody a second. There's like this silence and there's this pause. And then you can realize, wait a minute, did I just hear that right? Did he just promise to pay our student debts off like for free right now? And you could see then the, on the chancel behind the, the faculty are just leaping with joy. The president is just bursting out. He's shaking everyone's hand like he had done something. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and it's just a beautiful moment. Like, they're wiping away tears. It's the Morehouse College is a, one of the premier institutions in America. It's a men's college for mostly African-American men. And they're hugging each other and they're jumping up and down. And they're going, well, this is a free, this is the abundance of grace. Our debt has been forgiven. But you do have to receive that. And just put yourself in the shoes of one of these graduates. I, I don't imagine there's anybody who left that place and who started writing checks and sending them to banks or didn't think twice about their, their, their vocational options because now they don't necessarily have to go for the same income to pay back the debt that they thought. And maybe there's some freedom that comes. I could live in a different way perhaps for the next few years. This is why uh, Mr. Smith refers to this as a liberation gift because he wants them to pay it forward. He wants them to absorb this generosity so that they can be free from the constraints of student debt and do something truly original in, in, in their life. And, and I think that's what God is getting at in, in Jesus Christ. This is a liberation gift. By the way, it was $40 million. This is not a small thing. You, you know, I imagine his wife, I don't know if he told his wife, I'm not sure. <laughs> She's like, really? Um, very generous. You know, you and I might uh, be tempted to resist God's grace as well because to receive a forgiveness of debt is to admit that there is a debt in the first place. I mean, let's remember that, that God's grace is God's yes, but implicit in that yes is a no to every other way of life that excludes God. Uh, it, it, it validates the law, which says, you know, we're in deep trouble if we try to carve out a life for ourselves without our creator. And so we're tempted, and this is human pride, to say, no, you know, no thanks. Thanks for that generosity, but it, I just don't really need it. And so Paul's insisted that this, this, this great gift, this abundance of grace, is really for everybody, but everybody must receive it to say yes to Jesus. Yes, I, I, I want this. And we might as well, because God has given us so much more than Mr. Smith gives the Morehouse alums. He's given us abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. It's everything you need when you stand before God. Everything you need is in Jesus Christ. And this liberates us, therefore, you see. It liberates us from our spiritual debt. Liberates us from right relationship with our maker. Liberates us from the, the, the pain of sin and condemnation and death, ultimately. It liberates us, as we read on, we'll see in this, in this letter, from injustice and from futility and the groaning of all creation as it waits redemption in Jesus Christ. You see, grace is gonna get the last word, that's the point. Grace is going to get the last word in your life and in all of creation because of the one act of obedience in Jesus Christ. So when you think about your sin, when you think about your health, when you think about Whatever's going on in your life right now, and I believe each of us has a struggle. I have a struggle in my life, and I bet, I bet we could all share our struggle. Some are small, some are, some are great. But your struggle's not gonna get the last word. It's grace that gets the last word in your sin. It's grace that gets the last word in your health. It's grace that gets the last word in your constant quest for validation or your need for approval. It's grace that gets the last request in your God-given nature as one who needs love. It's all coming to you in Jesus Christ, in him, in him. And when we find it in him, we find ourselves liberated to quit trying to create it ourselves in other places. 
The point is that you, my friends, are loved no matter what. And maybe God brought you to church today just to hear that. You are loved no matter what. If that becomes the last word in your life through Jesus Christ, you're going to, I'm going to turn here, watch this, you're going to get the last word in other people's lives as well. And that's what Paul's saying. I didn't focus on it, but let me come back. We'll read verse 17 one more time. Look at this. Here's what he says. This is one of the great promises of the New Testament. Those who receive the abundance of grace, who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, what? Will exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Will be fully alive in life through the one man, Jesus Christ will thrive his life in your life, you will get the last word. You will get the last word. That's incredible. You are loved no matter what. And when you believe that, you become a powerful agent of change in this creation and that becomes the meaning of your life. The, the scholars will point out that it's, there's a, a bit of a turning point here in the letter as we move from five towards six, even right halfway through the letter, the pronouns start to shift from we to them, from first person, plural, to third person, plural, to eventually to all. There's this kind of movement out. This is not just about us. This is not just about these little communities huddled together under the nose of Nero and these house churches feeling threatened. Paul says, don't you feel that way for a minute? They think Nero is going to get the last word. And Paul goes, you know what? Who's going to get the last word? You are. If you receive the abundance of grace, if you receive the gift of righteousness in the one Jesus Christ, him living through you, you're going to get the last word. You're going to exercise dominion. Forget about Nero. Hold up your chest, your chin. Walk out that door into this city and embrace the needs of your neighbors as though they were your needs. Remind them that whatever they face doesn't get the last word in their lives either. You see that? Your neighbors need you. Now, I know, did you see the article in the newspaper last week, Seattle Times? The headline was... Uh, it was, it, was, it was this research that was done by PEMCO. Uh, the headline said this, half of Washington research residents don't want to talk to you. Half of Washington residents don't want to talk to you. Now, I want to say, don't believe that for a second. They're not talking about you. Your neighbors don't know. They don't know you yet. They, they don't know how that, you're, uh, that you, you live with the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. They don't know that yet. So if they don't know that, of course they don't want to talk to you. Like, here's why. Can I tell you a secret about your neighbors? Something your neighbors wish that I wouldn't tell you this morning? I'm going I'm to tell you something about your neighbors. And that is they're struggling right now. Your neighbors have some kind of crisis right now in their life. It might be small, it might be large. To them, it's, it's their crisis. And it's, so it's huge. They, 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 you don't believe that because... In the absence of grace, it is not safe to be honest about what's not right in your life because we just intuitively know that bad choices lead to condemnation and we can't afford condemnation because it leads to death. And so we spend a lifetime trying to hide everything that's wrong in our lives and project this kind of beauty and power and got it all togetherness. So yeah, look at us. And just, you know, you're doing that. I'm doing that. Your neighbors are doing that. The goodness of the gospel in Jesus Christ, we don't have to do that. And we don't have to believe that about each other. 
And so when you come alongside your neighbors with the abundance of grace and the free gift of life in Jesus Christ, you have what they desperately need, which would pull them out of the shadows, which would allow them to know they are loved by God, no matter what. That's how you exercise dominion in life. That's why you become world changers if you receive this gift from Jesus Christ. Basically, Paul's encouraging his readers to claim the authority of a Christian. I, I want today for you to claim the authority of living from the right hand of God in a seat of dominion, to know that your word, if it's a word of grace, will someday become Jesus's word. And in that sense, your word becomes the last word. So grace makes us agents of liberation, dominion. And that, I think, is the meaning of our lives. Let me close just by reflecting a little bit on these graduation experiences. I spent many hours literally sitting in chairs, uh, trying to keep the sun off my head, waiting for the next thing to begin. And I'm thinking about just so many emotions, how proud I am of the kids, but also this health crisis that we're, that we're right in the middle of. And I think I got some insight into my own heart because when we said to our family, we're gonna come and help, their response was, oh, please don't. We don't need you. It's too far. It's too expensive. It's too much time. Please don't. And, and, I, and I saw a bit of myself in that resistance to receiving grace. You know what? They, didn't want to, they weren't ready to receive it. And I think, how often is God as a father to me saying, I have everything you need and I want to pour it into your, like Paul says, the Holy Spirit pours love into our lives in chapter five. I'm ready to do that. And yet you've closed the vessel. The other insight I got is into the heart of God. And this is the more important one. If you've ever had a family member go through a significant crisis and you love them, you know that you will do everything you can to help. You will move yourself, you will move heaven and earth to make a difference in their pain. And I wanna tell you, Jesus says, if you as an evil parent, he's very honest, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father in heaven? Your affection for your family members, whether it's a parent or brother, sibling, child, is infinitely exceeded by God's affection for you. And this morning, God brought you to church perhaps to let you know, I see the struggle that you're in right now. I see the pain that you're going through right now. I see it and I can't not act because I love you. And you can do everything you want to shut me out. But my grace is abundant, is overflowing for you. And my grace will get the last word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sacred family, you have not retained the privileges of dominion for yourself, but have poured yourself out. You have chosen to rule by being a servant to us. Thank you for the one act of righteousness in Jesus Christ, his whole life. We pray that you'd soften our hearts to receive the fullness 
of this abundance today. And we pray that it would so overflow us here at UPC that pretty soon neighbors all around in the city of Seattle would start to say, what is happening? I'm starting to believe there's something better in life than I ever dreamed possible in this community, but not in this community, in the one they serve, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.